you have your Bible with you, or you'd like to use one in the back of the pew in front of you, turn with me to the gospel according to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, this morning we will be in verses 24 to 30. If you're a guest with us, we are working through the book of Mark, where Mark shows us Jesus as the king and what it looks like to live for him and to follow him in his kingdom. This morning we are going to think about the miracle of salvation and the ways in which it happens in ways we don't always expect. With all that in mind, let's read Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. This is the word of the Lord. And from there, he, that's Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. The great Russian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky once said, that the best way to define man is this. He is a creature who can get used to anything. If you want to know man from any other creature on earth, it is the fact that he or she can get used to any circumstance. It's important to know when he wrote that, he was writing about his time as a political prisoner in a work camp in Siberia. And has he witnessed the brutal conditions, the persecution, the labor, the freezing cold, as he ate meal after meal of soup filled with dirt and bugs, he noticed that over time, the soup didn't taste that bad. The freezing Siberian conditions weren't that cold anymore. Man can get used to anything. There's a positive way to look at that too, not just negative conditions. I love riding bikes. Teaching my kids how to ride bikes. I've got one on the dockets waiting for spring so she can learn how to ride her bike. That first time you ride your bike and the parent lets go and you are off on your own, and you are pedaling, and you are not falling, you go crazy. You're the king or queen of the world. You are riding your bike, and you celebrate. Friends, when I get on my bike, I don't act like that anymore. You know why? Because I'm used to it. 
It doesn't amaze me anymore. First time you fly, it's an event. But then you get used to it. This is at least the third story where Jesus rescues someone from demon possession. And it is really easy for us to read these stories and get used to it. Doesn't even blow us away anymore. That's dangerous. Brothers and sisters, what I want to emphasize to you this morning is this truth. Salvation is amazing every time. Mark is showing us that faith in the gospel requires a miracle every time. Salvation is amazing. It is miraculous. It is divine every single time. And you you might not be in this woman's position. You might not be like your neighbor. Doesn't matter if you grow up in church. Doesn't matter if you grow up on the streets. If God saves you, it is amazing. It is a miracle. Amen? Okay. All right. I want to show you four amazing, miraculous, mind-blowing features in this story, in this passage that we've read. The first feature that should amaze us is the place you'd never expect. The place you'd never expect. Look at verse 24 with me. And from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Jesus leaves the battle with the Pharisees that we've been engaged in for the last couple of weeks. And he goes to a place you'd never expect. He, he's hoping to find a place of rest. And so he heads north of Galilee to the region of Tyre and Sidon. That is in the modern day country of Lebanon. Near the city of Beirut, which is not the setting you would expect to find the Jewish Messiah. Here's what we know about Tyre and Sidon. It is the home of Jezebel. If you're not sure who that is, it is an Old Testament woman who leads the kingdom of Israel into pagan worship. You can start to find her story in 1 Kings chapter 16. She is the daughter of the king of Sidon. And she hunts down and kills the Jewish prophets. She is the thorn in Elijah's side. It's the kind of place we're talking about. Things do not get better over time, though. 200 years before Jesus and the time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is the Maccabean War. Tyre and Sidon fight on the side against the Jews. They join up with the evil king, and they fight against the people of Israel. That's why Josephus, the historian, the Jewish historian in Jesus' day, wrote that Tyre and Sidon was notoriously our most bitter enemies. That's how they saw this place. So when the Old Testament talks about Tyre and Sodom, it's like this. You can find it a lot of different places, but Joel chapter 3, verse 4. Listen to how God talks. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. 
That's the kind of place we're talking about. Now, how bad does Jesus want to get away from the Pharisees? He's so tired of them, he'd rather go spend the night in the home of Jezebel. He's so disgusted by the religious hypocrite teachers of Israel, he'd rather go here for the night. And if I asked you where you thought Jesus would get the most fruit out of his ministry, around the Sea of Galilee or around the stomping grounds of Jezebel, how many of us would vote for Tyre and Sidon? Even here, the gospel is spread. Because at the end of verse 24, Mark says, Jesus cannot be hidden. Let me ask you, where can you find the power of Jesus today? It doesn't matter if you are in the Bible Belt, Main Street, Bible Belt, USA, or if you are at 45th and Broadway, Times Square, New York City. It doesn't matter if you are in the middle of a sanctuary like this, or you are in a back alley of Afghanistan. It doesn't matter where you are. It could happen in a prison cell on death row. It could happen in a work camp in Siberia. Brothers and sisters, wherever you are, no matter what place you are in, the gospel requires a miracle. It requires the power of God for salvation, and Jesus can move in a place you'd never expect. And Jesus, number two, can move in the person you'd never expect. Look at verses 25 to 26. This is amazing. Immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. This lady is the Pharisees' worst nightmare. Remember the argument the Pharisees were having with Jesus in Mark chapter 7? They're worried about the disciples because they don't wash their hands. They're worried about these Jewish rabbi students because they're not following all of the rules. But then the next person comes along in Mark chapter 7, and she has nothing going for her. In fact, one writer puts it this way, this woman has the most stacked against her in the entire gospel of Mark. If we were to list every character in the book of Mark, this woman is the last draft pick for Jesus. In our minds. I want to walk with you through her resume. The things that she had going against her in the moment. Now first one, some of you are going to be really frustrated with me, but it's the truth. And I want to help you see it and explain what's going on here. But first and foremost, it's a woman. In Mark's day, brothers and sisters, sisters, in Mark's day, a woman did not have the ease and opportunity and right to approach a Jewish religious teacher. That kind of interaction did not happen. It was like the Billy Graham rule, but way, way, way more serious. I mean, Kent Hughes tells us that there was a group of teachers called the Bruised and Bleeding Pharisees. 
Do you know why they were called that? These holy men were so serious about their purity as they were walking down the street. If they saw a woman approach, they covered their eyes so that they wouldn't think anything. And they would bump into the walls and hit the shopping carts and trip over rocks. And they would get bruises and start to bleed and injure themselves. And they wore those injuries with pride. Every bruise on their body was a sign of their purity and holiness because they didn't engage that woman. That's the kind of mentality that religious teachers had in this day. On top of that, she is a Gentile. Literally, the word means unclean. It hints at this religious life. She is influenced by the Greek culture, and she worships multiple gods. The word in Greek literally means the polytheist. It's not only a woman, but she's somebody who worships more than one god. That's going to keep some distance between her and the religious teachers of the day. Not only that... She is a Syrophoenician. She is a political outsider. She is an ethnic enemy. These are, are sociological boundaries. The word, the, the prefix there, Syro, literally is pointing to the fact that her land is controlled by the Syrians. And Syrians in her day were a lot like Syrians or the way we think about them today. So the Pharisees are not going to approach this person, even if it was a male. Not only is the person a woman, not only is she a Gentile, not only is she a Syrophoenician, but her daughter is oppressed by a demon. So forget sociology. This is spiritual. She has everything stacked against her. Her geography, her gender, her culture, her ethnicity, her spirituality, and her family life. Like if you're looking for a prospect to join your church, there's nothing on her scouting report that would make you think you should go after her. What is this saying about the gospel? Let's just come to you and me. What is this saying? Can I help you? Your resume doesn't matter. Your sociology doesn't matter. The things that you would say make you worth saving do not matter. Look, we're in Mark chapter 7. There's three groups. There's the Pharisees, there's the disciples, and her. She is the least going for her. And right now in Mark chapter 7, she gets more of Jesus than anybody else. The disciples and Pharisees had every privilege, every opportunity, and she had everything in her way. Can I help you? Friend, listen. Being a white, church-going American doesn't get you closer to Jesus. Being in a nation that you call Christian doesn't get you closer to Christ. It doesn't put you anywhere near heaven. It doesn't put you any closer than anybody anywhere else. What gets you there? What gets you close? It's the one thing the woman's got that nobody else does. She knows her need. She knows how desperate she is. She knows everything she doesn't have. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the gospel. Hear me, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you've gone to church your whole life. It doesn't matter if you've never been before. It doesn't matter if you've done so much good for the community. It doesn't matter if you've been arrested 20 times. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. The gospel is for you. And the miracle of salvation can happen in your life. Right this minute, Jesus is the king who can change your life. Acts chapter 10, verse 43 is why Peter tells the Gentiles, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the gospel. Everyone can be forgiven. Will you be? Come to the Lord Jesus, turn from your sins, trust him as your king and what he did on the cross and the resurrection, and he will forgive you right this minute. And when you do, it is a life-changing miracle. Friends, can we hear that? Every time someone believes, it is amazing. It is miraculous. If we believe that, how much more confident would we be in sharing the gospel? How much more boldness would we have? Our confidence isn't in ourselves. It isn't in how much we know. It isn't in how good we are at sharing the gospel. Our confidence isn't in our audience, how easy it would be to share the gospel in this place, how good these people are in terms of their morals and their characteristics or or how shady the neighborhood is. Our confidence isn't in any of that. Our confidence is in the gospel, the king who can save anyone, anywhere, anytime. That's why Luke chapter 14 verse 21, the master in the parable of the great banquet says, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Verse 23 says, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Friend, what does a church that is confident in the power of the gospel look like? It's like that. It's not people running to their country club. It's not people running to the to the chamber of commerce and the mayor's office and getting all the powerful people to join your side to make Christianity look good and strong and powerful. It's going to the bars and the jails. It's going to the battered women's shelters. It's going to the food banks and calling the people who know their need to find a savior. Do you believe in the power of the gospel? Proclaim it. And let's say you do. I've got a game for you. A question. Let's say you get confident and get out there and share Jesus. Who are you going to tell them about? What kind of Jesus? I have a, I have a guess. You're not going to tell them about Mark chapter 7, Jesus. Because the third amazing aspect of this miracle is the Jesus you would never expect. 
you think you know Jesus? Read Mark chapter 7, verse 27 with me. Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. You come here to worship that Jesus this morning? I did. I hope you did. Because that's the Jesus of the Bible, brothers and sisters. Let's just go ahead and get it out of the way. Let's get the harsh statement out of the way. Every single person in here is trying to think about it, figure it out, right? It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now listen, people today, Bible scholars today, teachers today are like press secretaries for the White House. And they're just getting up there and and trying to say, you know, I know he said that, but he didn't mean it. Here's what he meant. Here's what the king meant. He said it. Dogs in the ancient world were different. Okay, we love our dogs. Some of us. If you're more like my wife than me, just to be honest, right? Love dogs. People love dogs. In the ancient world, they hate dogs. This was not man's best friend. Basically, every mention in the Bible of a dog is negative. Can I show you a couple? Flip, uh, Psalms chapter 22, verse 16. Psalm that's predicting the cross. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. New Testament doesn't get any better. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Dogs, brothers and sisters, were associated with uncleanness. They were defiled because dogs back in that day ate garbage and dead bodies and all manner of gross things. Right? That's why, ironically, we talked about this being in the land of Jezebel. It's how God cursed Jezebel. First Kings chapter six, or First Kings twenty-one, verse twenty-three, of Jezebel. The Lord also said, "The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel." Now, listen. There's a lot we miss in Jesus' statement. We don't know his tone. We don't know his body language. But. Jesus enters the land of Jezebel, and he encounters an unclean Gentile woman and calls her a dog. There's no way to get around this. It's loaded. It's borderline offensive. It's supposed to shock. What's going on? Before we go any further, I need you to hear this, brothers and sisters, so that you don't misunderstand. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 tells us that in Jesus we have a high priest who is like us in every way except one. He is without sin. Let me be clear. When Jesus called this woman a dog, he did not sin. That's not one of the answers. It's not one of the possibilities. 
If Jesus sinned in calling her a dog, then Jesus couldn't die for you. There's a lot we can't know, but we can know that. There's a truth here. you got to catch it. Verse 27. Let the children be fed first. So he's implying even there that there's an order, there's a process, and feeding time's coming. He's showing us the order of salvation, salvation history. The message of the kingdom starts with Israel. God chose them, and then it spreads to the Gentiles. That's the way he planned it. That's the way it was going to be. Even in Acts, when Paul is spreading the message to the Gentiles, where does he start? He goes to the synagogue first, gives the Jewish people the first opportunity, and then he goes to the streets. That's why Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is what Jesus is saying. There's an order here. There's going to be a time and place for you, lady, but it's not yet, and you got to wait. Get in line. Even that's shocking. I mean, do, do you worship a Jesus who could come to somebody and say, no, not yet. Hold up. you got to wait. There's one more thing stacked against this woman. Beyond her sociological barriers, it's her timing. According to the gospel calendar, she's too early. Right now, they're only boarding first class, and she's got a standby ticket waiting to see if she can get on. And Jesus, he can get her on the plane, and he tells her, sorry, kids first, pets have to wait. Wow. How many of you, seriously, how many of you worship Jesus, a Jesus like that? Let me help you if you're struggling with this. Ephesians 3 verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose. The forever plan that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is infinitely wise. He is infinitely good. All his ways are righteous. Everything he does is excellent. Even when he tells you no, even when he makes you wait, even when he uses a word that'll make you squirm, he's still God. He's still good. He's still wise. If we only worship a Jesus that makes sense, we don't have faith. We worship a God of our own making. We cannot just take and pick the Jesus we receive. That's why we preach verse by verse. You know how easy it would be to skip this and just jump into Mark chapter 8? But that's not the Jesus Mark gives us. And friends, the gospel, we're going to come here again. The gospel is always a message of confrontation. Jesus, he calls the Pharisees hypocrites. He calls them a brood of vipers, whitewashed walls. The rich young man who obeys all the commandments, he says, yeah, but one thing you don't have. 
Jesus always comes to us with a confrontation, a moment of opportunity for us to, to change, to turn. That's why the message of the gospel in Mark chapter 1 is repent. And it's why it's a miracle every time when somebody gets saved. That's why I want to show you the last just amazing thing that happens in this miracle. Beyond the Jesus you'd never expect. What we see with this woman is the response you would never expect. Look in verses 28 to 30. Watch how this lady responds to being called a dog. She answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. You cannot read the news or watch the news at all without seeing people responding crazy to one another. Make somebody wait in line longer than they want to and see what happens. People are getting shot either because they wear a mask or they don't. Doesn't matter. Depends on the store you walk into. People are losing their jobs because they said something that their kids don't like. We are walking on thin ice with one another. What's the root of all of these confrontations, of all of this hostility? What is going on underneath the hood for the world to be acting like this with one another? We have this mentality, this accepted truth that says, you deserve better. You are entitled to some respect. You are worth it, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And friends, as we're made in the image of God, there's some truth there, but we have taken that to an extreme that goes beyond biblical truth and exaggerated our view of ourselves. Which, if you go back to chapter 7, verse 22, is the very definition of pride. One of the things that comes out of our heart is we feel superior and we think more of ourselves than we should. I want you to get into this story. You're a Gentile, right? Probably, most of you. Just Get in this woman's shoes. And you ask Jesus for help and he calls you a dog. How are you going to handle that? How are you going to respond to Jesus in that moment? David Garland writes, imagine Jesus speaking these words to us. How would we have responded? Our answers would reveal much about who we are. It's not really hard to imagine, friends. When the gospel says something hard and heavy and confronts us, a lot of times the way we respond is by getting up and leaving and finding somebody who will preach a passage that makes us feel better and avoiding the passages like this that will call us a dog. In 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, that's what's going to happen at the end of time. People are going to turn away from the truth and find teachers that they like. 
Don't tell me what I need to know. Tell me what I want to know. We see that all the time. And friends, the church responds, oh, this is for free. By feeding that desire. Just make it easy for people. Let's give people what they want. Let's make them smile. Let's make them feel great. And you know what that does? Takes the miracle out of salvation. You're just doing what you think is right, what you think is best, what is the law of the times. There's no power of God in that. The power of God is when you take his word and bring it to his people, include the confrontation, and watch people respond, not in pride, but in humility to the word. That's where you see the power of God. But friends, we don't believe that that can happen anymore. We don't believe that power still exists today. We just want a Jesus that makes sense to us. And we want a gospel that makes us feel good. Friends, it's only the gospel that confronts us can truly make you feel good, can truly bring joy. I want you to see this woman's response. It is amazing. Jesus tells this woman to wait, calls her a dog. What do we expect? We expect her to raise her voice, to complain, to demand her rights, to tell Jesus to speak to me with some respect. But that's not what she does. What does she do? She accepts Jesus' word and then anticipates his work. Yes, Lord, yet. Those three words are how we are supposed to respond to the gospel. Yes, Lord, you are right. I am a dog. I'm worse than you even think. Yet, I'm willing to bet on your mercy. I'm willing to bank my life on your promises. Friend, when the word confronts you, can you sound that way? Proverbs 15, verse 33 says, The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. When the Bible confronts you, and it's supposed to, fight pride. Allow the Holy Spirit to expose the need, the area that needs to be cleansed, that needs to be challenged, that needs to be changed, and humble yourself and let God do his work. That's the miracle of salvation and sanctification. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You don't get the exaltation first. That comes second. When this woman humbled herself, put her hope in Jesus, what happened? With one word, he's not even in the same room with his daughter. With one word, Jesus rescues her from this demon. Pride, brothers and sisters, casts Satan and the demons out of heaven. And humility casts the demons out of this girl. How many God-sized miracles have we missed out on because you and I think we're too good for the crumbs on the floor? Friends, embrace your neediness. Embrace your weakness. Focus not on what we deserve or what we are entitled to. Remember what your sin deserves. 
set your hope on the king of mercy. And when we do that, it'll be no less miraculous than what took place that day. As the great hymn writer once wrote, nothing in my hand I bring solely to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let us pray.